Hello and welcome, Word Nerds, to DIY MFA Radio, the show that will help you write more, write better, write smarter. I'm Gabriela Pereira, instigator of DIY MFA and your host for this podcast. Now let's talk writing. Hello, hello, Word Nerds. Gabriella here, and welcome back to DIY MFA Radio. Our show notes are over at DIYMFA.com slash 403, because it's episode 403. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, you know, all those places where you might listen to a podcast, and please leave us a review. This will help other Word Nerds out there discover the show as well. And have you signed up to be a DIY MFA Radio Insider yet? This is an exciting new monthly newsletter, especially for our podcast listeners. Every month, you'll get an email from our producer with recaps of the most recent episodes, a curated listening list of episodes on a theme, and other fun goodies that we only share via email. Best of all, it's free to join. The theme for March is magic. And you can become an insider by signing up with your email at DIYMFA.com slash insiders. Now, today I have the pleasure of welcoming back a guest who we've had on the show before, and I'm just so excited to have him back, Rob Hart. Rob is the author of The Warehouse, which we previously featured on the show, and it's a gripping speculative thriller that is has been sold in more than 20 countries and was optioned for film by Ron Howard. Ah, I really hope the film gets made. He is also the author of the Ash McKenna series, a short story collection, Takeout, and Scott Free with James Patterson. But today we're going to be talking about Rob's latest book, The Paradox Hotel, And it's about a hotel that is at the crossroads of the space-time continuum. I am so excited to have Rob here. Welcome, Rob. It's so great to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. This is always a really fun one, so it's really exciting. You know, last time you were on, I can't remember if it was the the last DIY MFA radio or one of our summits, but you mentioned the Paradox Hotel, and I was like, oh, I need to read that book. And of course, now I'm reading that book. And ah, so anyway, I need to know, like, where did this idea come from? Because it's so unique. You know, I've always wanted to do a time travel story. And are you familiar with Sleep No More? No. Okay. So Sleep No More is this really cool interactive theater experience in New York where it's basically you're seeing like a version of Macbeth and it's this big warehouse style space where you go in and it starts as a hotel then it turns into all these other things like a psych ward and a cemetery and and the woods and you know you can follow the actors around or you can kind of like split off and do your own thing and search through stuff and, and kind of poke around things and I've done it like four or five times and one of the times I was doing it I I was going from like one room to another. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a hotel where like you walked in a room and it was like five minutes later or like 10 minutes ago. And so I went home and I opened up a Google doc and I just wrote time travel hotel and that's it. That's all I had. And it kind of sat there for like months and months, but it just kept on eating at me because I was like, God, this is something I can really have fun with and sink my teeth into. And then just over time, like like with all the things that I eventually end up writing, it just kind of like gelled over time with all these things coming together until finally I realized like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is the next book. This is the thing I need to write. 
So before we get too deep into our conversation and our discussion of this, just for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, Time Travel Hotel, it's a good like soundbite tagline, but it doesn't really quite encompass what this book is. So can you elaborate a little bit more? Like what exactly is the story? Sure. So the gist is that, you know, there's this hotel called the Paradox Hotel, and it's connected to a time port where there's sort of like a parallel here between what's happening with space travel, you know, where space travel started as like a government venture, and now it's being privatized by all these rich people. And I thought, you know, if we invented time travel, it would probably be the same exact thing where, you know, you'd have like, we'd invent it, the government would control it, then eventually the government would run out of money and then have to start privatizing it. So the idea of the book is that government is about to privatize time travel. You've got all these billionaires coming in to sort of like lay claim to this technology because at this point it's turning into like a tourism industry for the super rich. So when the book opens, it follows the house detective, uh, January, who, you know, she's got to juggle this big summit where all these billionaires are coming in to bid for control of the hotel. And then she walks into a room and she finds a dead body, but only she can see it. So she's not sure if this is a murder that's like going to happen or might happen or, or exactly what's going on. She's just pretty sure that this is all connected. So she's basically trying to solve this crime without telling anyone that there's been a crime because it could also be a sign of like her declining mental state because she's like a former time cop whose brain has been kind of screwed up by time travel radiation. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a locked room, time travel, romance, mystery, thriller thing with like robots and dinosaurs. <laughs> it's a lot. Baby velociraptors. That alone, you had me at baby velociraptor. When they like run through the lobby, I'm like, I am so in this story now. Well, you know, that's the thing. And and like my agent really was like, please don't write a book with dinosaurs in it. I'm like, no. <laughs> No, like, I'm going to have my time travel cake and I'm going to eat it too. I'm not doing this without doing dinosaurs. And the irony, of course, is that while it is a story about time travel and the character in the story has traveled through time substantially, and we're seeing sort of the after effects of all that time travel, we're not actually traveling. Like, we're in the hotel the whole time. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about this? I mean, it's delicious irony. That was the other thing is that like, as I was developing this, I'm like, I'm going to write a time travel book that doesn't have any actual time travel in it because I like to set myself really weird and limiting goals whenever I'm writing a book. But, um, you know, I kind of wanted to, to play with this idea of the unreliable narrator and sort of viewing events out of order. But like, I was sort of less interested in sticking her in a machine and like sending her to X point in the past. And I think, again, like that's one of the things when I was explaining it to my agent, I'm like, there's dinosaurs and it's a time travel book, but there's no actual time travel. And he's like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> I love it. This is hilarious. You know, what's interesting, too, is having read The Warehouse and now reading Paradox Hotel, by the way, do not dare give any spoilers because I have not finished it yet, although I've been up ridiculously late reading this book. One of the things I can't help but compare, right, and start looking at like, well, like, what are some of the similar threads and similar thematic elements that you're using in both? And one of the things that really struck me is how the 
place becomes the character in and of itself. Just like in the warehouse, the warehouse itself kind of takes on a life of its own. Here, the hotel is very much sort of a an entity of its own. So can you talk a little bit about place as almost a pseudo character? Yeah, well, you know, I learned a really important lesson with the warehouse, which is when I was putting that book together, and this was like way early in the process. You know, I was kind of trying to draft the book out and I realized that I had no sense of space. And that was really hard because in the warehouse, you know, these sort of live work facilities are basically their own little cities. And so I had to get a big piece of poster board and sit down and draw a map of what this place looked like, which literally was me like, okay, what does a city have? Good God. Like, how how do you build a city from the ground up? Like, okay, it's going to have a transit system. It's going to have housing. It's going to have fire and police. It's going to have hospitals. It's going to have Starbucks, like all these different things that make a city a city. So I mapped it out. Like once I finished the map, it it was like such a huge light bulb moment for me because I was like, oh, like not only do I kind of see it, but I just solved a major plot problem in doing this. So when I when I was doing the same with Paradox, which was kind of building that out, the first thing actually I did was kind of like look for visual inspiration, which was I I went into Google Images and just I think I Googled like cool hotels or something stupid like that and just like clicked through pictures until I found the uh, the TWA hotel at JFK, which is the old TWA terminal that's now been turned into a hotel. And I loved the look of it because I think a lot of hotel narratives utilize Art Deco design, which is great, but, you know, wasn't really the feel I was going for. Whereas TWA is more mid-century modern. So it's very sort of like retro and futuristic and seems like it really would fit well with what I was doing. So I contacted their events coordinator, got a tour of the hotel, took a ton of pictures, came back and then basically like mapped out like got another piece of poster board and drew my own version of what I thought the hotel should look like. And again, like it was one of those things where it was like, okay, like now I can kind of see how the plot's taking shape because I need to be able to know roughly how long is it going to take for January to get from like the front desk at the lobby up to the restaurant, to the furthest wing of one of the, the housing portions to like down to the basement. And once I kind of have that, like the whole process just kind of really clicks for me. It's interesting, too, when you mentioned the the TWA hotel and just like that idea of mid-century modern. What jumps out at me is like, so I'm a total design nerd. And so I always find it interesting when you have these design movements or when people are like retroactively using the design of like mid-20th century, which is supposed to be futuristic, but now it's actually old. Yeah. So there's that weird like time warp even in the design itself, kind of like Jetsons, like, you know, it's supposed to be futuristic, but it's like what people thought would be the future in like the 1960s. Yeah. Which is I find so weird, but also really cool. Yeah, no, it was it was so cool just kind of like walking around the space and like, you know, if you're familiar with the TWA hotel, which like if you watch the movie Catch Me If You Can, like that big sort of huge walkway thing that they're in at the end like i think that was part of the terminal but yeah it's such a great space but you're exactly right it's really interesting to see like what people thought the future was going to look like we're now kind of getting to this place where like all these movies from like the 70s and the 80s that were like you know here's what the world's going to look like in 2000 it's like wow you got all of this wrong 
but it's still really fun to see. Yeah, like, you know, when they said there would be hover cars in 2015 in Back to the Future 2, and then 2015 came and went, and I still don't see my hover cars. Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting, though, is, like, from a writer perspective, creating that feeling of both timelessness and also, like, time warpiness So, like, the design of the hotel and the way you describe it very much feels that way. Like, I almost picture it as sort of like a hotel slash Mobius strip that there's, like, the hallways and you can never really see that far down because they kind of curve in that weird way. And the way January describes the space, it just feels a little bit off kilter so that it feels like it's both stuck in time, but then also where the heck in time are we? kind of feeling, which is exactly what I would think that kind of a hotel would have to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the interesting things about developing this idea, which is that initially, like, you know, I first got this idea of the hotel being kind of like beat up and run down. And and I forget who exactly pointed it out, but I had a friend who I was kind of like talking through this with. And they were like, this is a hotel for billionaires. Like, this <laughs> is going to be a ratty place. This is going to be a five-star hotel. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it was fun kind of making it sort of like twisty and turny because then it's just like it's more fun for me once things start really getting out of control, like toward the end. Yeah, yeah. And we get a sense right from the get go that things are not as they seem. But as you alluded to in your sort of description of the story, at first, it's not 100 percent clear if that's because january's a little bit off kilter or if it's because there's something else going on so can you talk a little bit about how january's journey evolves in the story and sort of how that impacts the story itself yeah sure so i mentioned previously like january was like a time cop she was in the time enforcement administration and um she suffers from this thing called being unstuck, which is for some people, the time travel radiation can kind of screw with their heads and affect the way they perceive time. So there are various stages of it where the first stage is you start slipping a little bit like into the past or into the future where you might see something like you might see someone walk into a room a couple of minutes before they actually do. And in the second stage, your perception actually just completely falls into like old memories. So you're actually like reliving something that happened in the past. And then the third stage is that your brain basically like short circuits and fries. And on one hand, like it kind of makes her a better detective because sometimes she's seeing things before they happen. So she can kind of predict what's going to happen, which is good. But her being at this hotel is exacerbating her condition and she really doesn't want to leave. And part of that is because, you know, the woman that she was in love with died in the hotel in a tragic accident and she can still see her, you know, she can run into previous versions of her, like, like basically like seeing her ghost. And so she's afraid that if she leaves, that connection is going to be severed. And so that was kind of a fun thing to play with where it's like January is like really holding on tightly to this connection. And she's afraid that if anyone finds out that her condition is getting worse, which it seems to be that they're going to make her go. So she's fighting to protect herself at the same time. She's kind of killing herself. Yeah. And it's like the very thing that potentially makes her the only person who could solve this murder is also the thing that would make people not believe her. Yeah, no, everyone thinks she is a crazy person, which is it's it's so much fun to play with the perception that way. And uh, 
yeah, th- this was a real challenging narrative to write. It, it was hard to kind of like keep all those threads and also like really firmly root it in January's perspective, but be able to kind of like portray what other people were thinking and how other people were reacting. And, you know, I got to say, like I said, I always wanted to write a time travel book. And it's one of those things where when you're finally doing it, you're like, why did I do <laughs> myself? Oh, but those are the best projects, right? <laughs> They're the most rewarding. When you get to the end of them, you might beat your head against the wall while you're in it. But like, don't you feel so much better now that you did it? I feel better now that it's done. <laughs> and, and you know, it's funny, too, because I finished it. And I'm like, good God, I'm never doing this again. Never, ever. And then I got an idea for a sequel. And I'm like, uh, OK, maybe. <laughs> Okay, so I can't help but notice, and maybe this is just my weird, warped literary brain, I can't help but notice certain allusions to Greek mythology, right? Like, we've got the character who speaks the truth and sees the truth, and yet no one will believe her when she does sort of a pseudo-Cassandra character, i.e. January. But then her name, which I'm guessing like the month January, it's named after Janos, you know, the the god that looks into the future and looks back. So like, were you thinking all these things consciously when you were putting her character together? I was not. And I love that you kind of like picked up on that because now I'm going to pretend like I did <laughs> in like other interviews so that I can look smart. You know, the name January was just sort of like... I, I was really banging my head against the wall trying to figure out a cool name for her. And I came across January. I'm like, oh, that's such a great name. And it's so perfect. And obviously, I saw like the connection there with Giannis. And I, and I thought it was kind of cool to kind of like create that parallel. But it didn't really go much deeper than that. Yeah. Like for me, the minute I saw that, like, I think at first we don't hear January. We hear her referred to like one of the characters calls her Jan, I think, or something like that. And at first I'm like, she's not a Jan. And then like we hear because we're in her head this whole time. And then we hear January and I'm like, oh, well played, Rob. Well played. Not very well played. (laughs) I I saw it on a list somewhere and was like, that's a good name. But yeah, no, like it's funny. Like I spend so much time stressing over names because names are so important. And it's always such a light bulb moment whenever I find them. Like, as soon as I see it, I'm like, oh, that's the name. That's it right there. Okay, speaking of names, because some of the supporting characters have some really interesting names as well. We've got Ruby the Robot, who I didn't realize Ruby had a male voice. Although, like, you know, at first we find out that there was a female voice. And then there's this whole thing where she reprograms Ruby to be a total jerk and then objects that Ruby's a jerk, which I find hilarious. <laughs> we've got Nick with a K, not CK. And then we've got Cameo, who's just fascinates me as a character. And I feel like that name is significant as well. Can you talk about these characters? Sure. Well, the easy one for Nick, that was just like a buddy of mine is Nick without a C. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to give him a little nod in this. And I just liked it. I like the way it looked. With Ruby, you know, I came across this as I was writing the book, and it sounded really interesting, and I appreciated hearing it, which, um, you know, Ruby initially had, like, kind of like a sex pot, like, breathy, like, Scarlett Johansson voice. And then I read somewhere that it was, like, really sexist that in sci-fi books, like, helper robots were sort of, like, bundled with female voices. This idea that, like, you know, the helper had to be a woman, and I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting point. I kind of dig that. And it felt like something January would kind of clock and be like, you know, I don't like this. I'm going to give it a male voice. And I'm also going to give it a funny accent. Yes. I'm like, well, what's the funniest accent? And I'm like, well, New Zealand, of course. 
So yeah, I just thought that was like kind of fun. And then as with Cameo, that was fun too, because I wanted to have a non-binary character, which someone on Goodreads gave me a one-star review for being too political because one of my characters was (laughs) non-binary. But yeah, Cameo just like really struck me as a fantastic gender neutral name. And again, it was one of those things that as soon as I saw it, I'm like, there it is. That's the name. And it's interesting, too, because Cameo, like it makes me think of those like not just the Cameo appearance, but like those brooches and so like sort of serene. And Cameo, of course, is the character is this sort of delightful, even when we know that they are completely wanting to smack the other person upside the head, and yet they hold it together. And it's just, it was such a perfect name for that character. Yeah. Every time I saw that one, I was like, oh, I feel good about this one. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about Ruby, because Ruby is in some ways almost like the superhero sidekick for January, even though Nick and January are It ends up being sort of a buddy cop situation with them working together. But Ruby is almost like like really more integral to helping January sort of deal with stuff. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Because it is just so delightfully weird. Yeah, well, I think in a large sense, you can never go wrong with a wisecracking robot sidekick. (laughs) Like, that's just a recipe for success no matter what. Can I quote you on that? Because that is amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, but I think that was the thing is like January kind of needed a foil. You know, that's sort of like almost from a mechanical perspective when you need someone like January spends a lot of the time alone. And so she kind of needs someone she can talk to or like bounce things off of. And sometimes to be able to like act as like an audience surrogate. So there was that. and. I just kind of liked this idea of this weird little robot just kind of like floating behind her. And it looked like like a floating pair of binoculars and was like also kind of a jerk sometimes. And the thing I find hilarious is that she programmed Ruby that way. It's not like that's how Ruby came out of the box. Like these robots are supposed to be nice, but she purposefully made this robot obnoxious and then she objects when it acts obnoxious. I mean, technically, so she didn't specifically program it to be that way. The thing was, is the robot was like designed to report back to the TEA if her condition started getting worse. And she was like, okay, well, I need to change it so that it won't do that. And in the process, she kind of broke it. Mm. But I think there's also a little bit of nature versus nurture there where, you know, January can be like really prickly and it's an artificial intelligence robot that's basically just absorbing information around it. So it's only frame of reference is this person who is like, you know, often rude and mean to other people. (laughs) So it's basically January, just kind of like a bad mom in that respect. And what I find really interesting, too, though, is when you have that kind of scenario, right? Like speaking as a mom who is occasionally faced with her children imitating behaviors that they really shouldn't have imitated, you know, like we get a taste of our own medicine, right? Like it's a way of examining oneself without actually examining oneself, which can be incredibly powerful tool for a writer to force the character to look at what they don't want to see. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and I know that feeling too. Like, <laughs> God, there was one day so something happened. My daughter dropped something and she just went, Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> and I was like, where did that come from? And she's like, you say it when you drive all the time. And I'm like, whoops. <laughs> yeah, in our household, our children have been informed that they will go to language jail if they swear <laughs> before they're 18. And I'm pretty sure that they'll figure out that that's not a real thing at some point before they turn 18. But I figure if it buys me a little bit more time, I'm okay. <laughs> See, I'm kind of okay with it. Every time my daughter accidentally drops a swear word, it's it's, it's that thing where like you, you try really hard not to laugh, but you can't help but laugh. <laughs> it's like positive reinforcement. I know. I know. The best part is when it happens in public, especially oh. like, you know, someplace where you really would rather not be pegged as the bad mom. Yeah, that's the worst. I, I know we're going off on a tiny <laughs> tangent, but yeah, we were in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and like we were in the, the the statue room and she just yells out of the top of her lungs like, I can see that statue's penis. And I'm like, yep, that's my daughter. Yeah, yeah. At least she used the anatomically correct word. Yeah, yeah. The parenting for the win. Exactly. So circling back... <laughs> our very spicy, prickly character of January. She's very aware that she is not a likable character, which is interesting. Like, usually when we have characters in books who are prickly and not particularly likable, they don't necessarily realize how unlikable they are. But she's very much aware of it. What's interesting to me is that this type of character is really hard to write and not alienate the reader. And yet... I still find myself, while I know, like, the logical part of my brain is like, January is so mean. Like, she's being a total jerk. And then there's a part of me that's like, I wish I could be like her. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's that catharsis aspect of, like, she's saying the things that secretly maybe some of us wish we could say. So how did you walk that fine line? Because I've also read books where characters are incredibly unlikable, and I just wanted to throw the book across the room. And this is not one of those books. So how do you do that? How do you write an unlikable character, but still make us want to not smack them upside the head? Uh, Very carefully. Okay, say more. And that was one of the things that like my agent keyed into like really early in the process. Uh, He was like, dude, you got to tone this down with her a little bit. Like she's too much. And that's kind of the thing is like, because it's fun. Like she's funny and she's not cruel. She's just like very sort of quippy and, and impatient. And I think that's part of the key is like not making her cruel is like knowing that like at the end of the day, she's going to do the right thing. She just kind of has to be dragged there a little bit. And I think the important thing was to kind of get to the root of that character. And it's like, well, why is she like this? And it's like, she's not doing it just to do it. She's not doing it because she wants to hurt people's feelings. Like it's a defense mechanism. Like she's someone who's very sad and someone who's carrying a lot of grief and a lot of anger, but more than that, doesn't know how to confront it or how to process it in a healthy way. So the best that she can do is just put up this armor to try to protect herself. And I just try to focus on like the sadness of that. Mm. Like I feel bad for her and and I want her to kind of like reach this like level of catharsis and to kind of see like what she is and what she's doing. So that's kind of like the whole book is like trying to bring her to that point, but having to bring her there like kicking and screaming. Yeah, there's I think also a fair number of redeeming qualities in her. Like she's really good at her job. And she's sacrificed a lot to do her job. Like the fact that her actual physiology, like her cellular makeup is now like 
falling apart, basically, because she was, you know, being a time cop for all those years. And even when she's not necessarily being nice, like you said, she's not cruel. When she does have to make tough decisions, it's for what she thinks are valid reasons. So I think there's a big difference there than someone who just arbitrarily makes hurtful decisions for the people around them. So I think like there definitely still are many things in her favor. So even if she is a little bit prickly and maybe a little fast with an insult, it's still like, at least for me, I like I'm okay with that because I can see that her heart is in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's the thing. It's with characters like these, you just have to make sure you're getting across that. Like, you know, that at the end of the day, they're going to do the right thing. Even if they don't necessarily act that way, even though if you don't always get that indication, you always know January is going to do the right thing. She's just going to be kind of a jerk about it. You know, it's interesting for me when I've read and I have no like this is me like testing a theory out loud right now. I've read characters that are annoying and prickly. And when they're male, they tend to bother me more. I don't know why. That's interesting. Well, I guess there's sort of like this assumption of aggression with men, whereas maybe that's a little bit less prevalent with women. Because I guess with men, that aggression can sometimes hint towards like violence or sort of like abusive behavior, whereas with this, it's maybe a little bit lessened. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I'm trying to think like the male characters that I've read that are really prickly, like Holden Caulfield. I've tried to like The Catcher in the Rye, and I really can't bring myself to like that book because the character, to me, is just so horrible. But in some ways, he's even less prickly than January, and yet in her, it doesn't bother me as much. And I don't know if it's just the nature of the voice or what have you, but like, it's just interesting to me. Like, I wonder if there is like a pattern in terms of genderedness of the characters, whether prickly characters are more or less likable depending on their gender. Yeah, I wonder too if maybe there's sort of like a, an assumption of entitlement. Maybe. Because yeah, like I think Holden Caulfield is a really good example here. And like, and I have, I have struggled with that book too. I've never been able to finish it. But yeah, I feel like when you're listening to a man talk about, you know, how entitled he is and how much he deserves the world, that could be really, really obnoxious real quick. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. I see a lot of parallels between January in this book and was it Zinnia? Was that her name in The Warehouse? Yeah. She's also kind of prickly and not always the nicest, friendliest person. But then the I forget the name of the guy, not the owner of the warehouse. Paxton. Paxton. That's right. He's much more lovable. And I think like in a way he acts as like the foil for Zinnia's prickliness. Do you see Nick operating in a similar way with January in this story? A little bit. Yeah. You know, I think both Paxton and Nick are sort of like a little bit more wide eyed and a little bit more like excited about the world, you know, and I definitely saw some parallels between January and Zinnia. I I think January was someone who like kind of always had trouble relating to people. And then she suffered like this really traumatic loss and it turned into sort of this really big wound that just wouldn't heal. And I mentioned it in the book, but it's a real concept, uh, complicated grief, which is like when your grief is like so intense that you start to kind of like 
become unstable and unreasonable. And, um, you know, whereas Zinnia was just kind of like a straight asshole, um, <laughs> but she wasn't someone who was like coping with grief. She was someone who was just a real hardcore professional who just wanted to get the job done and was slowly sort of brought to this place of understanding that the world is a lot more gray than she thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like Zinnia is very militant in her beliefs. Yeah. Whereas I find that, yeah, like January, I think it's more like she's plagued by her own demons more than sort of adhering relentlessly to those things that she's been told to believe. Speaking of the parallels between the books, because again, like I can't help but see parallels between Warehouse and Paradox Hotel, aside from the contained spaces, the other thing that jumped out at me was the choice in point of view characters and the way you handled this narrative tapestry, as it were. We're in January's point of view pretty solidly, basically the whole time, right? In Paradox Hotel, in the warehouse, we're jumping from one, you know, Paxton to Zinnia to the owner Gideon, right? I think it was uh, Gideon? Gibson. Uh, Gibson. And we're sort of cycling through those. And then you also play with like first person versus third person. Here, we're now in first person the whole time. So we're really getting like in January's head and we're in for the ride. Can you talk about, first of all, like the choice of why you chose to weave the story together with this particular point of view, but then also like the experience of writing, you know, solidly a single first person point of view. You know, I got to say, in a lot of ways, it was like slipping on a comfortable pair of shoes because my first five books were all first person perspective, present tense. And then with Warehouse, I was like, you know, that's not what this story demands. This story demands, you know, multiple POVs and, and playing with different perspectives because it was such a, a bigger, slightly more sweeping story. And then when it came time for Paradox, it was like, OK, well, this is sort of a, a much more intense character study of someone who's like dealing with grief, who's trying to face herself and can't and also like playing with this idea of like an unreliable narrator. Like I wanted to bring the reader to the point where like they were kind of questioning whether or not January was losing her mind. And so I think in that sense, it really had to be limited then. Right. And that was something with Paradox that I thought was important on a lot of levels. When you're dealing with something like time travel that could be really big and sprawling and complicated, you have to just start like adding roadblocks and limiting things. And I think that like setting myself a rule that, you know, like we invent time travel and we can go to the past, but we don't yet know how to go to the future and having there be no actual physical time travel in the book and then making this really focused from her perspective those things that I guess might appear as limitations were actually really helpful for me in just sort of really focusing in on what I needed to focus on and making sure this book didn't completely spiral out of control. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see where the spiraling could very easily happen. And in terms of like being so grounded in January's point of view as well, like one of the things that fascinated me is right at the opening of the book, like the first scene had me going like, what? <laughs> and it's because she's in the middle of this episode of, I guess, what is it, phase three or something like that, where she's like experiencing the sort of physiological repercussions of being unstuck. And because we're just dropping into the story with her, in a way, the reader also is 
kind of going on this roller coaster of not knowing, wait, is this real? Is this really happening? What's going on here? And that actually, like, I hate to use the phrase show, don't tell, but like it basically is showing us and making us feel rather than telling us what January is feeling. And that's a really fun sort of line that you have to walk because you're dealing with a lot of weird, complicated stuff. Like once you get into time travel, it's like, okay, like, you know, I think as writers, we're helped along by the fact that modern audiences kind of understand what they're getting into with the time travel narrative, even if you're not like someone who's really adept at quantum physics, which, you know, I'm not (laughs) either. When H.G. Wells did it, it was the novel concept. Like now it's something that it's like, okay, cool. Like the Avengers travel through time. They travel through time and lost. Like there are reference points in popular culture. So that helps with a little bit of shorthand. But then when you're getting into like the real hardcore part of it, it's like it's finding that balance between like showing it and demonstrating it and then having like a secondary character like Ruby that you can kind of talk things through with and just trying to not like overwhelm the reader with too much detail. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I bet. And there's also that it's like you're walking on a tightrope and on one side it's being too literal or rehashing the version of time travel that everyone already knows. And let's face it, it's been done so many times since H.G. Wells did it that it's gotten a little tired. And yet on the other side, if you go off the rails, (laughs) then your reader has no idea what you're talking about. And like, how long are they going to be able to hang on to the outside of this roller coaster car before they fall off? So it's like, staying on the tracks and like keeping us in that zone of, oh, this is new. This is different. This is a different take on how time travel operates. And then also like not going completely overboard where the reader's like, okay, I have no idea what just happened. Exactly. Exactly. Which is like kind of one of the other challenges is just like, how do you make it unique? Because again, like this has been done enough that you have to find an entry point that you have to make sure that you're giving the reader something new, which is again, why like pretty much immediately in the process, I clocked into this idea of like, okay, time travel book with no actual time travel. That's going to be a good starting point. Yeah, exactly. Especially since like a lot of the same like time travel frameworks tend to come up again and again, right? Like the whole idea of the alternate timeline. And if you change something in the past, like it's been done, you know, in Back to the Future, but then it's also been done in like however many different episodes of Star Trek reruns and whatever other things. So like after a while, like you said, a modern audience gets it because we've been exposed to time travel stories, but then it also gets repetitive too. Like, oh, we're just going to change the timeline. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of having it be grounded and also not going completely off the rails while still being different and making it a different type of story. One of the things I thought that really helped with that is how grounded we are in the space of the hotel. I mean, we've talked about how the hotel as a setting is kind of twisty turny, but it's still a physical space that serves a purpose of grounding the story. So can you tell us a little bit more about the role that the hotel plays in keeping us sort of centered as an audience for the story. Yeah. The thing I went into wanting to do was that like, again, like we're playing with some weird concepts here and uh, 
I think when you're going to do that, if you want to keep a reader engaged, you have to tie it to something that they're familiar with. And like everyone knows what a hotel is like. Everyone knows what it's like to like go to the airport and your flight gets delayed and then you have to figure out what to do. It's like trying to root it in those concepts of familiarity so that then I can sort of be like, oh, and also here's a bunch of dinosaurs. So (laughs) this it's finding this sort of like the common threads and, and, and the universal understandings. And, um, yeah, it was just like, and so having the hotel is like sort of like this focal point was just really, really fun and really helpful and really kind of like challenged me to think about how to tell the story in a way that like a reader can grip onto, you know, and it took like going to some hotels and just kind of like walking around and like thinking about hotels from a storytelling perspective. Cause like, we all kind of like know what a hotel is, but like when you're actually in one and thinking about how to tell a story and what readers are going to sort of like clock and what they're going to understand and what they're going to see, you know, it's a much different thing. Yeah. And there's a whole like behind the scenes culture in hotels as well, right? Like as we're learning and sort of following January around sort of like in the back offices and whatnot, I get the same feeling as like I had when I was watching that movie Tower Heist, where we're starting to see like the behind the scenes of like what's happening in this really fancy building, like residential slash hotel building. And on one hand, it's like usually we only see the the front end of that, right? Like, because that's the part where the guests walk in and out or the residents walk in and out. But seeing how everything works behind the scenes is also really fascinating. And the understanding that the characters have of each other's roles. Like there's a scene where she finds the the dead body where like the person who's making up the room doesn't see it there. Yeah. And so like the fact that she's seeing it and being like, why is she not reacting to this? And so like they have this whole interaction that is delightfully weird, but also completely makes sense given that they're seeing seen in very different perspectives. So yeah, I feel like all those elements are things that kind of add texture to that setting. Yeah. So looking ahead, you've got a lot happening, a lot coming up. Before we talk about things that you've got in the pipeline, I also wanted to just open up our conversation a little bit more about sort of the the commentary that both Warehouse and Paradox Hotel make. Like one of the things that I notice as a parallel is that both of them are taking things that might seem ordinary to us, but then using them to kind of make a bigger commentary. Like the warehouse, it's this like live-in warehouse and the meaning of what does it mean to have a big corporation run everybody's lives. And then Paradox Hotel, this whole idea of like, privatizing a public thing, but then this whole idea of the the billionaire time travel stuff and sort of the social commentary that both of the books make. And so I'm curious, like, is this a pattern for you? Like, is this something that drives your writing or that draws you to a story that it has like a bigger cultural impact? Oh, absolutely. Like billionaires are the best villains, first off, <laughs> because they are irredeemable on every level. And this isn't even hyperbole at this point. Like we know, like we have evidence, we have so much evidence of this, that billionaires will literally let the world burn if it means adding a single cent to their stock portfolio. Like they just do not care. And so, uh, you know, I'm always going to go after rich people. I'm always going to go after capitalism as like a, a bad and dangerous thing that maybe started 
from a good place and is just metastasized into like this miserably bad system. Like even going back to my Ash McKenna series, like in the fifth book, it deals with the heroin crisis on Staten Island, which is where I live, which is like a really big deal. So I'm writing about it from a street level perspective, but also made sure to, to explain that the reason for this is because of like the Sackler family and like all these pharmaceutical companies that like knew that they were putting out an incredibly addictive substance and then were covering up studies about how addictive it was so that they can charge more for it and get it overprescribed. And then, you know, kind of create this huge crisis that's like, you know, tearing apart the country. And I'm always sort of like slightly less interested in street level stuff and more interested in like who's the one who's like sort of benefiting and profiting it at the end. So yeah, that's always going to be the ultimate target of everything that I write, because it's just like, those are the shots that we need to be taking. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of using storytelling to shine a light on bad stuff that's happening in the world. But I find that speculative stories tend to have a bigger impact in that regard, in a way, because it's not a direct, like, I am pointing my finger directly at that billionaire. We all know who the billionaire is that is being attacked in hypothetically the warehouse, but it's not a direct affront to that individual in the real world. And so I think in a way it makes it more impactful because you could insert any hyper-powerful person into that role and it still holds true to some degree. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, I kind of struggle with it a little bit because on one hand, it's like, yeah, people are going to read this and they're going to go, yeah, billionaires are bad. Maybe we should do something about it. But then it's like, I don't know. I mean, like Orwell wrote 1984 and we're still like teetering on the edge of fascism. So it's like, what have we learned? Yeah, maybe we need more Orwells. Yeah. So in terms of what's coming up next, you alluded to a sequel. Do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? So this is really funny because between the time that you and I record this and the time that it actually comes out, there is a pretty good chance that I might have like a couple of announcements of new projects or might have zero announcements. because (laughs) I have no idea what's going. I've got a couple of things that are kind of floating around, which is I co-wrote a comic book with a friend that I think is done, and we're just waiting for that to get announced. But until then, I can't say anything. I've got another novel that like me and that same friend co-wrote that is out on submission that we could find out later today we have a deal on, or we won't. So yeah, I'm in this weird liminal space of like working on all this great stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about just yet that could break at any moment. I also, uh, I've got my eyes peeled on the TV adaptation of Paradox Hotel, which is currently being developed by Working Title, which, you know, is moving along. And I just read the pilot and I'm really hopeful that like that might turn into something. So, yeah, I am busy, but with nothing that I can specifically tell you about. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited. And you know what? If you do have news to share between this recording right now and when it airs in March, let us know and we will make sure to put it in the show notes. So check the show notes, people. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully there's something in the show notes. (laughs) If there are updates, we will put them in the show notes. So I always like to end with the same question. What's your number one tip 
for writers. And I'm going to adapt this since you've been on the show before. What's the number one tip you would give yourself when you first started writing Paradox Hotel? Okay. So yeah. And and I'm pretty sure this was not, I I don't remember what I said last time, but this won't be it. It's just like, you got to trust your gut because like I wrote the warehouse and everyone made a big deal out of it. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, what do I follow this up with? And I, I remember like I had the idea for paradox and it was a little wacky and I hadn't really like solidified it yet, but I was afraid that it's not what was expected of me. I was afraid that it was not the book that like I needed to like follow up the warehouse with. So I started working on this other idea that I wasn't as passionate about that. I was trying to be a little bit more cerebral about choosing. And it just, it turned into a nightmare. Like it wasn't coming together. I didn't have the characters like me and my editor worked on it for months. And it just like, it just eventually kind of like crashed and burned. And then finally I stamped my feet and I cried and I was like, I'm doing this, this weird time travel hotel book. And everyone was like, okay, fine, fine. It sounds weird, but just go ahead and do it. And then I did it. And then everyone was happy. (laughs) So yeah, I should have trusted my gut a little bit earlier. My gut was telling me like, this is the thing you need to write. But I made the decision with my head instead. And in the end of the day, it was fine. It wasn't a big deal. I lost a little bit of time, but I think that's also like a lesson that I, I needed to learn. So yeah, I would say like, you know, if you got an idea that like someone is telling you is like kind of weird or kind of out there, who cares? Like if it's going to make you happy, just do it. Just follow your bliss. I love that. And I wholeheartedly agree. This has been so much fun, Rob. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. Like this is always a blast because I love talking craft. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved how we were able to discuss both the Paradox Hotel, but then also how it reflects against the warehouse as well. So for our listeners, go out, grab a copy of Paradox Hotel, and I highly recommend reading the warehouse as well. They are wildly different and yet many common threads that you will enjoy in both. All right, Word Nerds, thanks so much for listening. Keep writing and keep being awesome. Awesome.